Gracious God, we are coming to your presence and we pray that you will nourish today us. Please hide us in the shadow of, shadow of your grace and give us your spirit to me, me to speak and my brethren and sisters to listen and to analyze and to benefit from your word. Heal us, redeem us, and transform us. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Today, my, the title of my sermon is called The Taste of Our Daily Bread. The, some time ago in March this year, 26th of March, I spoke on the subject of Lord's Prayer, and the title of my prayer was Why the Lord's Prayer? If you listen to that prayer, it will make more sense what I'm going to share today. If you missed that prayer or you didn't listen or uh, you want to refresh it, please search in our um, uh, YouTube channel uh, uh, for Stone Tower Church and you'll find that prayer by the title, Why the Lord's Prayer? And uh, after you listen, it will make more sense. My, my uh, sermon was... Uh, focusing primarily on two sentences of the text. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And today, we are going to focus our attention on another sentence. May I ask the IT people to lower a little bit the the I'm receiving feedback. Thank you. So we are going to focus our entire attention on the sentence or statement, give us this day our daily bread. That is Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. I would like to do with you a Bible survey to see what people's understanding is about our daily bread. I would like to know what is your understanding about daily bread. So the expression daily bread comes from the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness. That is Exodus chapter 16 verse 4. And you know, people rebelled against God and they said that they are hungry, they are starving, and God said, okay, well, I'm going to give you some bread. And uh, the text says, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day. How many times? Every day. So here is the concept of daily bread comes into the play. And then the text says that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. God is promising to give people daily bread, but what is the purpose of that daily bread? Huh? To test them. It's not as much to feed them, although it is the purpose, but the purpose is that I may prove them whether they will walk on my law or not. The physical daily bread from God's perspective 
had a very distinct spiritual meaning and purpose, while people were thinking it is just a daily bread to consume and, uh, and uh, go through their life. You just imagine. What kind of memories did Israelites have when they heard the expression daily bread? Did they think manna? Or they thought that pita bread that they could break in two and create a, a little pocket in that pita bread and put the meats, juicy meats, and the marinated onions, and the salads, and then sit by the fire and enjoy their life and socializing with their friends and families and eating. What kind of bread did they imagine? You see, while in wilderness, these people, they had their own concept about the daily bread, which didn't fit with God's concept of manna. And down the road, they again rebelled against God, saying, we are so fed up with this manna, take this nasty food from us. You, you remember what they say? Here is number 21, verse 5. You, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our hearts detest this miserable food. Can you imagine? They speaking against what God's provide, God provides to them. This food is miserable. Detestable. For the people in the times of Moses, bread was associated with Egyptian stability, while the promised land was associated with sheer uncertainty. So that is an Old Testament. Let us look into the New Testament. You remember Jesus was feeding 5,000 people with two, low, two, two fishes and, and uh, five pita breads. Remember that? So when everyone had enough to eat, what did they say to Jesus? Give us this, day, this bread every day. Always. We want this bread. Right? And Jesus is confronting them, saying, Very truly I tell unto you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And Jesus is reasoning with them back and forth, and pretty soon they discover that they detest this bread from heaven. As soon as Jesus starts telling them that that bread is me and you are going to eat my flesh and drink my blood, they go like, oh, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? And some of the disciples are saying, what hard words you are telling us. It is hard to hear. So you can see that people's understanding of daily bread is something to consume on daily basis, absolutely detached from spiritual notions. And Jesus and Moses is talking about a daily bread that is specifically directed towards 
spiritual connections with God. In both cases, they liked first the idea, but they didn't like the spiritual meaning behind it. Well, let's see what Jesus thought about daily bread. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he is fasting for 40 days. No food. And then the serpent comes and he proposes Jesus to do what? Turn these stones into the bread and eat. Nourish your body. You know, it sounds just like he is speaking with Eve, right? Help yourself. If you are the son of God, help yourself. Basically what he is saying, I do not believe that you are the son of God because God is self-existing. But you need something outside of yourself to nourish yourself. And what Jesus says? It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus points out that the daily bread is not a deliberate thing you labor for to produce and to satisfy one's physical necessities, but rather the true bread is to obey the word and the will of God. Then next story is Jesus at the well. He is talking to a Samaritan woman. While disciples went far away, whatever, into a distant place to buy some food. When they come back with their food, Jesus is talking to this woman. And they are inviting him to have some bread. And what Jesus says? Do you remember what Jesus said? I have food you do not have any idea about. I have food that nourishes me. And nobody knows about that, I, that, that kind of food. And then he says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Okay? So we have an idea, right? Some people believe that bread is bread and they are praying honestly for daily bread to fill their stomach. Jesus says, oh, actually there is something more than bread. There is the will of God we need to pray about and feed ourselves on the will of God. And that is daily bread. Now, very Shortly after he taught the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, Jesus is making a statement that is absolutely astounding. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and 32. Please open your Bibles because we are going to spend a little time here, and you will see something very interesting in this text. 
So I'm reading. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. And he is saying that the Father is taking care of them. How much more precious are you than the birds? Verse 27, this is a, this is a pinnacle of the chiasm that, that Matthew is giving us. That is the central. Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So what is Matthew saying? What, what is Jesus saying? That by worrying to eat some food and to put some clothing on you, you cannot add an hour, a minute longer to prolong your life. Can you? No way. Well, we can have arguments about healthy living, you know, uh, meatarians and vegetarians and... Uh, and uh, veganism and, and, and argue our points that we are actually prolonging. But that is not the case. We will find in a, in a very short time. And then the chiasm go backwards and it says, And why do you worry about clothes? You see, don't worry about food, don't worry about clothes, because it doesn't help you to extend your life. And then he says, why are you worried about what are you going to eat? Don't worry about that. And the next statement is, because the pagans worry about that. Wow. Just a few minutes ago, Jesus says, pray, give us our daily bread. And a few minutes later, he says, if you are actually too concerned about daily bread to pray about it, you must know that it is the Gentiles who are concerned about that. Very interesting. And then he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What's food? What's bread? In Jesus' terms. What is spiritual bread in Jesus' terms? He is using bread as a symbol to help us understand that there are two mindsets. One is a paganism mindset and one is a Christ-centered mindset. A paganistic mindset is concerned about how I'm going to do tomorrow. And the Christ-focused mindset is, what is the kingdom of God today? What am I? Let us focus a little bit on paganism. Because Jesus is saying pagans run after this kind of food. What is paganism? Paganism has developed on three core ideas. Believe in self. Rely on your personal wisdom and ability to care for your own temporal and eternal existence and destiny. You remember what 
serpent told Adam and Eve, or Eve, if you eat from this tree, you will surely become what? Like God. If you use your wisdom, if you use your will, you will succeed becoming a higher spiritual being. That's paganism. Second, the magic power to one's spiritual is in the nature. So paganism teaches that when you are thinking about food as something that gives you spiritual energy, then you'll make progress. You see, the fruit in the tree, Satan said, is magic, works magic. Nature is magic. Third, the attempt is, or the purpose is, to replace God with Satan. A holy and righteous God is being considered as limiting one's personal growth, while satanic anarchy is being considered as freeing and empowering self to skillfully subdue and use the nature, people, and cosmos at the pleasure of one's will. That is the road to becoming God's. And this is exactly what serpent was teaching. Rely on your ability, on the mother nature, and my guidance, and you will succeed. So disciples are invited or cautioned by Jesus to not fall into the trap of being so concerned about daily, literal, physical food. He says, do not worry, and do not say, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Because the pagans run after these things, although the Father in heaven knows all of these, uh, their needs. But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the rest you will receive. That's interesting. That the way how Matthew is using the words tells us something about that mindset we are touching about. The word that Matthew is using, the pagans are running or seeking after this, is in present active indicative. It, sta- it stands for a stating a very fact of action carried by the subject. So it is stating an obvious fact. They are doing it. What it means? It means that they have a fixed mindset that never changes. A religion that never compromises its ideology. That is paganism. It is so because it was ever so with paganism from the very beginning. While Matthew is using a different uh, structure for, for, but seek you first the kingdom of God. That is present active imperative. What imperative stands for? It's a command. So it's a command to be followed that repeats over and over and over again. So Christianity is not a static religion. Paganism is a static religion. 
But Christianity is a dynamic religion that helps you to seek over and over and over and be concerned about kingdom of God on daily basis. That is daily bread. Why is that important? As you'll find out when you listen to the sermon I preached last time, Jesus was focused on God's holiness, on Father's holiness. And he is praying in the beginning, Thy name be holy, made holy. In whom? In me, in Jesus. And this is where he comes from saying, the only way you can make that happen, God's name can be made holy in us, if on daily basis we are looking, we are searching, we are preoccupied with the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There is no other way around. So the expression, Give us today our daily bread is really telling us to be actively, relentlessly seeking for the kingdom of God as the pagans are seeking for the physical bread. So Jesus is changing the perspective. Learn from pagans. Look how much they are preoccupied with finding food for their stomach. You should be so preoccupied to find the kingdom of God in your life. He makes a distinction between two religions. And by the way, there are only two religions in this world. All other denominations are breaking from these two religions. One is the religion of the serpent, and the other one is the religion of God. What Torah does teach about daily bread? I want to take you to a very specific text that is coming from the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. I'll read that text to you. It is set itself up to be a great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily from the Lord and sacrifice is in uh, in uh, uh, yes in, in italic, and it took the daily sacrifice from the Lord and His sanctuary was thrown down because of rebellion of the Lord's people. The daily again sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered. In everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. What are we dealing with? Something very specifically daily, and that daily is in sanctuary. And we are being told that there was a force that threw down that daily sacrifice, or daily, and because of it the truth was what? thrown down to the ground. Very important thing. Well, let us see what is that daily. I'm going to read to you some texts. Exodus chapter 25, verse 10. 
And you shall set up the table upon the table showbreads before me always. And that always is daily. Oh, so we have a concept that there is something daily happening in the holy sanctuary. The showbreads are supposed to be set up for daily use. And that word in Hebrew is tamid. Another verse, Exodus chapter 27, verse 12, it talks about pure oil beaten for the candles to burn always. And that word is tamid, daily. Now we have bread and we have oil that needs to be burning daily. Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel for a memorial before the Lord continually, daily. And that is Exodus chapter 28. And then Exodus chapter 28 verse that was verse 29, and I'm, I'm reading verse 30. Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon, upon his heart before the Lord continually or daily. And then verse 37, Aaron will bear the, the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate continually or daily tamid, so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Still another daily is morning and evening lamb offering for, with flour, olive oil, and wine upon the altar regularly daily. And still another daily, actually every Sabbath. On each Sabbath, it was two lambs to be offered in the morning and in the evening, daily. And burning incense, final text, Exodus chapter 30, was supposed to burn daily. So you see, daily is not necessarily one piece of thing. Daily is, encompasses the whole structure of worship services in the sanctuary. So to, to make a conclusion or bring this together, this is actually a description of the quality of the bread that Jesus is inviting us to ask on daily basis. It is not about the flour and the water. It is about what quality of food are you going to receive. And that is the daily showbread is feeding on God's word and his will. The daily oil is the work of the Holy Spirit in me and my life on daily basis. The incense burning is God's sanctified and consecrated to God mind in my life. The daily lamb offering that stands for the daily atoning sacrifice of Christ in my life. The double lamb offering on the weekly Sabbath stands for double blessings. It's the blessing of Sabbath and the blessing of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ in my life. The daily bearing of the breastplates with the names of the children of God, which is the practical application of the holiness in action towards your fellow 
people. Aaron was supposed to care for his people and for their sins. And it gives us three concrete principles. First principle is bearing the names of children of Israel for memorial before the Lord. It is bringing your family in prayer on daily basis before God and praying for your friends, for your loved ones you want to be saved. Bearing the judgment of the children of Israel. So instead of judging and accusing, you have to take that judgment upon yourself and bring peace. And here is another one. Bearing the guilt involved in the sacred gifts. Help me with that. How can a person have guilt if they are bringing sacred gifts? Am I having a guilt right now by preaching the sacred gift of God, the sacred word of God? You see, even when you are doing the best in God's service, you still can be faulty. And Aaron was supposed to, to take that fault to allow you to still be able to minister and work. That is what Christ does to us. This is the quality, daily bread, that Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray about. Asking the Father to supply them with his righteousness and with the principles of his kingdom is the true bread that makes the mortals alive. Or you will say, how does eating of this kind of daily bread of righteousness of God and the, of kingdom of God looks like in real Christian life? We have a good understanding how to eat a pizza bread or, or a pita bread and, 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 you know, we enjoy about it. But how really can I eat this kind of bread that God, that Jesus is praying about? That is a very tough question, and I believe that Jesus is demonstrating it very well in a story. And I'm going to share that story with you this morning. That story is recorded in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 and on. We call that story communion service. Let us see how eating of this daily bread works in practical life. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus is giving bread to his disciples. You remember? He broke the bread. And he said what? Eat this. This is my body that is being broken for you. Matthew chapter 26. And Jesus took the bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. And then he did the same with the cup. Just imagine for a moment. Be with me. What really means to eat somebody's body? Huh? To become one with them. 
To eat the body of Jesus is literally to become one body, one flesh with him. It translates into having the mind of Jesus, the character of Jesus, to share the destiny of Jesus. So Jesus is breaking that bread and saying, this is the bread you need to pray about. He blessed it. And he says, here, come, join me. I want you to have my mind, my character, to share my destiny. This is why Jesus was so worried about the disciples when, when he quoted to them the, the prophecy. The shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will run away. He said to them, all of you will be offended because of me tonight, for it is written. Let me tell you something about the word offended. Today, word offended can mean many things. You can look at me in a way and I'll say, oh, I'm offended by the way you are looking at me. You can tell me something and I can say, oh, your words are so offensive. Here is what Bible says about offensive. The Greek word is scandalon. It's a familiar English word, right? You, you, you heard the word scandalous or scandal? In the English language, we have the word scandal, which means an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage. That is offensive. When you are morally and legally wrong, that is offensive. However, Greek means, meaning of scandalon is to entice to sin, to cause somebody to sin, to force or to trap somebody or to trip somebody to sin, to make someone to sin. It is expressed as the movable stick or trigger of a trap. When you were kids, did you try to catch birds with, with, a, with a little uh, box? And then you put a trigger stick there, and then you have the, the, the uh, string attached, and you hide behind whatever, and you put some food there, and you are waiting when the birds fly or go in inside, and then you remove that. That is scandalous. That is the offense. When you are making a person to sin, or you catch a person in a position that a person would not be right to be there, or is jeopardizing somebody's life. When a bird is ensnared, it is a jeopardy to the life of the bird. So now, let me tell about this scandalous word. The actual word is skandalistesontai. It is, it is given to us in, in passive mode. Which means, it is not what you are doing to yourself. It is 
You are a passive recipient of somebody doing it to you. And Jesus is saying, tonight, all of you are going to receive something I'm going to do. And what I'm going to do is going to be so offensive to you that you will flee away from me. Do you see where we are coming from? Jesus becomes the snare. Jesus becomes that sin from which people are going to run. So Jesus is telling to the disciples from the prophetic word of God on how things are going to develop and they say, no, that's not the cause. I want to draw your uh, attention to something very unique. Matthew, he switches his focus from the whole cohort of disciples to exclusively Jesus and Peter. And from now on, we are going to shift our focus and talk about these two men. Okay? Peter responds to Jesus. Though all men shall be offended because of you, I will never be offended. So you do not have a trap for me, Jesus. You cannot trap me. I will never be offended by you. Pretty bold statement, huh? Peter presumes that the prophetic word may be correct about everybody else, but not about him. He will never be enticed to abandon Jesus because of Jesus. He presents himself as a rock-solid follower of Christ character. And Jesus responds, Verily I say unto you, that this night before the cock crow, you shall deny me three times. And he is given some very fact-to-be specifics. Here is, tonight before even the cock crows, and then you'll deny me three times. How did he know that? But Peter cannot hear it. It is unfitter to Peter's character for one to view him as a coward or a error prone. And he insists, though I should die with you, you will, I will never deny you. You see where we are going with it? Even if costs my life, I will not deny you. Peter in his mind made a clear determination to go with Jesus till the end, even to die with Jesus. After this powerful testimony, Jesus drops the subject. He is not bringing it back again. From now on, both Jesus and Peter are bound for a life or death covenant to go together till the end. Now, Jesus enters with his disciples in Gethsemane. And I'll, I'll stop by a little bit to, to tell you something about Gethsemane. The meaning of the very name Gethsemane is very controversial in itself. It sounds like an oxymoron. 
The word gas, Gethsemane gas, is a very gloomy and oppressive meaning. It literally means the wine press or the machine that bruises, crushes, and squeezes the olives to extract its fat. Would you like to enter in such a beautiful garden? For someone to bruise you, to crush you, I'm sorry, to crush you and to extract, to, to squeeze you to extract the, 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 the juices you have in yourself. Would you? Pretty painful and gloomy garden to walk to. And at the same time, Gethsemane has an element of relief and joy to it. The word semen means fat. Fat. Have you heard the expression of a, the Lord God will anoint you with the oil of joy? You see, People would be so joyful to receive a few bushel, I mean, a few gallons of olive oil, and they will use that. So now let me ask you, when you are buying your uh, pure virgin uh, oil, uh, olive oil from the store, how much time do you spend crying over bruised fruits? Do you? No, you don't even think about it. You are enjoying your oil. So this Gethsemane name has this bittersweet taste to it. It's an oxymoron name. The idea is to bruise, press, and squeeze the olives in such a brutal way until the oil comes out of it, and this final product of pure virgin olive oil is the fat that causes you to rejoice. So Jesus is coming into this beautiful garden. The garden of press. Oh, I have a question for you. Why in the world would you would choose Jesus to come into this gloomy garden? By the way, Luke tells us something important. That actually he made this garden a custom for his spiritual relationship with Father. For his prayer. Every time he comes under this press to pray to his Father and spend time with his Father. Why? This is the most perfect picture that could possibly describe the agony he will have to go through in order to bring the oil of joy to his father. This is why Jesus made this place the ethos. The, the custom in Greek is ethos. When we are talking ethos in this in, in contemporary world, it is, it is our ethics. Just imagine Jesus made his ethics, this moral imperative to go under the press 
in Gethsemane to kneel before his father to pray on daily basis. So he is bringing his disciples over and over and over to Gethsemane. Why? That they start getting a taste of what kingdom of God looks like. It is so beautiful to sit in the pews with a pita bread in your stomach and with meat and think about the kingdom of God. But it is almost impossible to be under the press to the point where your oils are being squeezed out of you. Thinking about the kingdom of God. And Jesus day after day is introducing his disciples to taste this heavenly bread. So Jesus enters the garden of Gethsemane. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Matthew chapter 26, 37, 39. Then said he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tear you here with me and, and watch. Uh, what means exceedingly sorrow? How do you comprehend that? Huh? Exceeding what? If I'm saying I'm exceeding, exceeding what? Exceeding the limits of human's capacity to bear this kind of pain and sorrow. It means that his agony is incompatible with human ability to be alive. This is why he is dying. His process of dying started right there with his first prayer under the press of Gethsemane. And he says, be with me here and watch with me, pray with me. Then he comes back and the disciples are praying. Are they? They are snoring. You know, when you are confusing a prayer for snoring, there is a problem. And he says, Couldn't you men keep up watching with me for an hour? And he's addressing that to nobody but to Peter. 
the text is explicitly saying, he asked Peter, Man, you entered with me into an agreement to go to the end and die even with me. And you cannot even start beginning to experience what I am experiencing. Are you serious? He goes back and he prays the second time. And he comes and all of the disciples are sleeping again. You see what happens when you have a pita bread with meat in it and a little bit of wine? It makes you too comfortable. Our Christianity is like that. We are seeking for pleasure, not for Gethsemane. After the third prayer, I mean, after the second, he didn't even bother the disciples any longer. He left them alone. There is a text in the book of Zechariah that he throttled what? The wine press alone. And nobody were there to help him. Alone. So he leaves his disciples alone. And he goes, prays again, and then he comes. And here he sees silhouettes of people coming with, with, uh, with little uh, lights. And he recognizes that these people came to, to arrest him. So he wakes them up and he says, well, wake up, wake up, let's go. Let's go, the time has come. You slept your time. You know. Very painful. And they get up. And they move. Two people entered a blood-sealed agreement to go to the end, even to death, together. And one is caring about his spirit. Another one is caring about his flesh. Jesus is praying to God and he is struggling to make the biggest effort in his life. He is young. He is beautiful. He is handsome. He has juices to live at least 80, 90 years. And he understands that he needs to die. So he is in this agony with his father pleading for his life. Please pass this cup away from me. Give me my chance. And then he goes around and he says, oh, wait a minute. Not the way I want, but the way you want, Father. Help me obey your way. And Peter is having a different philosophy.
I need just to rest well. Refresh my muscles. And when things come, I have a sword here. And I'll fight. Day and night. Difference for two people who agreed to go together to the end. Peter is in the event and cannot recognize even the significance of the event. So Jesus gets up, wakes them up, and they move. Now they are faced with Judas and the soldiers and a few high priest servants. And Jesus says, let's go, here is my betrayer. When Peter saw that the soldiers are arresting Jesus, he grabs his sword and he strikes and he cuts somebody's ear off. That very action tells me that Peter meant to go to the end. He was not afraid to die and to lay his life for Jesus. But that was a death by flesh. Jesus says, put your sword back. Because if you pull your sword, you will die of your sword, right? Put it back. Now, Peter is so confused. If I would be Peter, I would be confused to what? I'm fighting for you. I want to release you. And you are telling me, put your knife back into its place? What's going on? I thought we are together in this. I thought you are going to kick and hit and run. No. This is how a mind of flesh thinks. And Jesus says, put it back. Luke is telling us a little bit more. He says, no more of this. And he touches the man's ear and heals it. Peter probably died of, of anger seeing that. What? You see... Peter has gone a long spiritual crisis for. And now he is even more conflicted with Jesus not supporting his endeavor. His chronic self-confidence with embellished superficial spiritual fitness kept him in a blind spot about his true condition. When circumstances arrived, 
instead of controlling his own anger and temper, Peter was about to control everyone around him. Acting by the impulse of his flesh. While Jesus was undergoing a spiritual crisis too, however, by earnest prayers and supplications to his father, Jesus managed to subdue his volition completely unto his father's will. And when in the situation, Jesus acted in the spirit of his father's character. Friends, the story of Peter and Jesus is not just an old story written in the scriptural scriptural records. This is a story about you and me. This is a story that teaches us the taste of our daily bread Jesus was praying about. I'm asking myself and everyone who has entered the covenant with Jesus to walk with him all the way till the end, no matter of what. What is your or our Christianity about? Do we really walk the walk with Jesus where we pretend to walk with him in reality treading down our own paths? In my personal Gethsemane, is the mind of Jesus revealed in me? Have I developed the character of Christ to be like him while under the press? Would I be able to share with him his temporal an eternal destiny. Serious questions. Jesus was praying way before he met his offenders. Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let us take some time to identify this prayer. What type of prayer is this that Jesus prays in Gethsemane? There are prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of praise and rejoicing, and prayers of mourning, and all sorts of intercessory prayer. What kind of prayer is this? Can you identify it for yourself? In Gethsemane, Jesus refused to trample his own way, but he took the path his father chose for him. So the prayer, not my will, but your will be done, is a desire to surrender completely and acquire the mind and character of the father that he may share the eternal destiny with his father. Jesus prayed, that his father enables him to be 
in one accord with him in every obstacle of his life. Father, not by the impulse of my flesh, but by the power of your will. This prayer is a covenant prayer. Jesus enters into this one, three more times into the same covenant with the Father before he goes to the Calvary. I do not want to fulfill my own volition. I want your will to be mine. In, in, in essence, he is telling to his Father, I am going till the end with you. And you remember when he was dying, he said, Father, what are you? Why did you leave me? And as a sign of obedience, he says, Oh, now I'm going to take the power in my hand and manage everything my way, right? Is it how he said? He said, In thy hands I commit my spirit. Even though you left me, even though you got offended by me, even though I am a sin to you, I still choose to stay with you. Friends, serious stuff. I want to learn to pray this prayer of covenant. Lord, I do not know what is awaiting me for today. When I will meet with my friends or my enemies. But please empower me in every circumstance of my life. To act not by the impulse of my flesh. But by the grace of your spirit. So Peter cut somebody's ear off. In the moment of his compulsion. Now follow me. What if. Someone. Would bend over. And pick that piece of flesh. And come to the pilot. Would they have hard. Evidences. That Jesus is a leader of a mob and the disciples are revolting. Would they? The person who chose to enter into a covenant with Jesus to go all the way to the end with Jesus, even to death, is jeopardizing Jesus' good name. And character. Giving the whole evidences. Into the hands. Of his enemies. Discrediting him. Contrary to Peter. Jesus stepped forward. He picks up that piece of flesh. Touches the man and heals him. There are evidences. What happened to the evidences? Gone. He is the great high priest. 
that he can take your sins and my sins in his hand and fix them and nobody would be able to accuse you of nothing because he is the high priest that is under the pressure of the whole world's sin Look at this stark difference and contrast. The gap between Peter and Jesus grow exponentially. Peter was caring for his flesh. Jesus was caring for his spirit. Now Peter is raging in and harming. Jesus is compassionate and healing. Peter is putting Jesus' good reputation to jeopardy. Jesus is forgiven. He sets him free from being arrested and crucified next to Jesus as a rebel. Peter is acting by the impulse of the flesh. Jesus by the spirit of his father. Two men, Jesus and Peter, agreed to go together till the end. But their ways are so distinctly different that they could not walk together any longer. So the ways are parted. Jesus now is in the court of the high priest being trialed. And Peter is outside the court. And you think he had it easier? He was trialed too. Jesus was trialed by the high priest. Peter was trialed by a little servant girl. What a disgrace for a Jewish man to be trialed by a little servant maiden. It tells you how much Peter was left of himself when he was in that outside place. This little lady comes and says, Peter, hello. It looks to me that you are one of them. And Peter says, what? What are you talking about? He says the words, I do not know this man. Just a little proning by a little lady. And Peter says, I do not know this man. And then another servant comes and he says, Look, your face looks very familiar to me. I think I saw you in the garden and I think you were doing something there. And Peter says, Sure, right? No, I don't know what you are talking about. And then somebody comes and says, Peter, but... You have an accent. You know, I have an accent. And you know where the accent comes from. 
Peter was so much around Jesus that he created a vocabulary. He had an accent. Like we have an Adventist accent, right? And he says, I do not know the man. And he starts, what? To curse and swear. I can tell you about curse and swear something, but I'll miss that. So basically, Peter is saying, in the name of God, I am telling you, I don't know him. That's kind of cursing. He is swearing with the most high things to save his skin. The words I know not the man are ringing the biggest truth Peter ever could have said in his life. Although it is the most painful discovery one ever may make, it is the most hopeful discovery. As a result, Peter realized two very important things. We are talking about squeezing. Peter was squeezed to such a degree that finally something good started coming from him. Because when he was told you are going to betray, he was saying no. I know my Christianity. And finally he comes to realization. Peter disowning was more than admitting to himself that although he knew Jesus by flesh, in reality he knew him not. And second, I'll, I'll refer second next time, uh, a little bit later. With this statement that he didn't know Jesus, he was conflicted. And here are the, the points of his conflict. How can a man live a life of humility and suffering, yet act like God. How can a man be in flesh and deny self to such a degree that the holiness of his father's character would be perfectly revealed in him while under the press? Second, thing that Peter realized that he does not even know himself that's a big realization to have how many times do you realize that you do not know your own self is it easy to realize see we think we know others better than we know ourselves right it's easier. But Peter realizes finally that he doesn't really know himself. Peter's self was shattered. 
He began to see himself in the true light of Christ's presence. Then and only then started Peter to see the sorrow of his condition and the importance of Christ in his life. Peter realized that he was preoccupied with a religion outside of himself, overlooking self in the religion. Friends, if you have a religion you are being preoccupied with and you are not being changed by that religion into the image of Christ, then you are being preoccupied with external things that are not helpful to you. It's a point of deception in the good name of a religion. But religion is not what I profess but what I become as a result of that profession. And only the press of your personal Gethsemane will reveal one's true nature. Because of this experience, Peter found the true taste of our daily bread. And his life changed forever. This daily bread brought him to acquire the mind of Christ, to develop the character of Christ, that he may share the destiny of Christ. Today, we studied the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And we may conclude... Jesus is not talking about the literal physical bread, but rather he is inviting his followers to enter with him into a deep, blood-sealed covenant, to working with him on a daily basis to acquire the mind of Christ, to develop the character of Christ in order to share the same destiny as Christ. This is only and only to how the name of the Father may be hallowed in our life for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and for his kingdom to come. Amen. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Teach us, Father, how to receive it under the press of Gethsemane, that we do not change our mind to stay focused on your will, on your holiness, and on your kingdom. This is our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.